The 15th of May not only saw renewed fighting in Kumasi, but a major player appear in southern Ghana. His name was James Wilcox. A veteran of British campaigns in Afghanistan and northern Nigeria, Wilcox possessed an unmatched degree of battlefield experience compared to the relatively inexperienced officer corps in Ghana. In fact, he had been in the middle of planning a campaign in northern Nigeria when he was abruptly summoned to Ghana to fight in the War of the Golden Stool. Crucially, he brought with him a sizable army of a thousand fresh and well-equipped Hausa and Yoruba soldiers, as well as a half-dozen British field officers. He had arrived in Accra in early May, and marched up to Prasu by the 15th, just as the hostilities were renewing. The arrival of this force proved rejuvenating to the otherwise struggling British forces. With a thousand new men and much-needed supplies in their ranks, the British army divided into two columns. One, which Wilcox commanded himself, would march from Prasu onto Kumasi and alleviate the besieged garrison at the fort. Meanwhile, another 400 men, under the command of a lieutenant, would move west through Adansi, secure an alliance with the locals before moving north to attack Kumasi from a second angle. Wilcox's lieutenant's campaign got off to a strong start. The Adansi Hene was hesitant to side with the British. After all, he could remember what happened last time his people had crossed the Ashanti just over a decade ago. But after receiving assurances that the British victory would be swift, the king quickly came around. The British advanced north to a small town called Esumeja, which they captured without resistance. Just north of the village, though, was a major roadblock. In front of the town of Kokofu, an Ashanti stockade blocked the path forward. The lieutenant ordered his machine guns to fire at the structure, but again, they proved ineffective. The machine guns seemed to be, if anything, a burden. The large, cumbersome weapons required frequent reloading, an opportunity which the Ashanti took to fire on the men bringing ammunition back and forth. One British officer, while doing so, was shot in one of his wrists. Multiple attacks on the wall proved ineffective and costly for the British. The Hausa unit among them, as well as the officer corps, took particularly heavy losses. All but one officer was either killed or severely wounded in the fighting joining a casualty column of more than a hundred men on the day. Even the lieutenant himself was killed in the fighting. By the end of the battle, the British mounted one final bayonet charge. With hundreds of men charging the stockade at once, the Ashanti defenders decided that the time had come to retreat, and fled before the infantry had even reached the base of the wall. As a result, the Ashanti managed to suffer few, if any, casualties during the fight. The battered British and House of Forces meekly celebrated this victory before retreating back to their camp in the south for much-needed medical attention and resupplying. With the British gone, meanwhile, the Ashanti simply climbed back to the top of their stockade and retook the position. The Battle of Kokofo was an enormous victory for the Ashanti coalition, and arguably the first incredibly one-sided Ashanti victory over the British since Nsamanko. Not only did the battle show that the Ashanti forces were more than capable of keeping the British at bay and inflicting heavy casualties in the process, but it also proved that the British claims of an imminent quick victory were simply impossible. The Pyrrhic victory cut off the British from some of their less committed allies. The king of Adansi, fearing for his people's safety should the Ashanti win, quickly renounced any allegiance he had to the British and pledged his personal force to aid the Ashanti armies. The Bekwahene, previously a promising ally for the British, returned to a state of neutrality and demanded that British forces leave his home city. Meanwhile, the situation of the British trapped in Fort Kumasi continued to get worse. They blew through the food that they had purchased or had been brought by their reinforcements during May truce within only a few days. 
By early June, the British officers inside had began to eat rats, mice, cats, and lizards to tide their hunger, before even these sources ran out. Soon, they had resorted to eating their belts and clothing, boiling the articles in water and eating the softened leather. And they were the lucky ones. For the unfortunate house of soldiers accompanying them, they received the crumbs of crackers that remained from their military rations. And, believe it or not, even the House of Soldiers were in the relatively lucky camp here. For the civilian refugees and military porters, food consisted largely of grass and weeds. To keep the refugees calm, the British offered a soup kitchen for the refugees, which gave them boiled water that the British claimed was actually a tasteless soup. If you were very lucky, your soup might contain a rat bone, dissolved biscuit crumb, or a chunk of belt leather. With conditions in the fort clearly worsening, Hodgson realized that continuing to hold out hope for rescue was a death trap. He opted for a risky, secondary plan. The governor and his men began organizing an escape attempt. The plan was that all of the healthy soldiers, military porters, and some of the civilians trapped in the fort would participate in the mad dash. To evade the Ashanti, they would form a singular, long column and take an unusual winding route that led them through the territory of a collaborationist Olanhani in the northwest and then loop around again to go south. Meanwhile, British officers fed fake rumors to the Ashanti that they were planning an escape attempt along the more direct and obvious path from Cape Coast to Kumasi, diverting Ashanti attention away from the actual route. At 7am on June 23rd, Hodgson and his column launched their escape attempt, until they encountered their first Ashanti stockade. The Ashanti soldiers manning the defenses spotted the British column and began firing at them. Hodgson and his men mobilized a quick attack on the structure and managed to overwhelm the defenses due to a tactical blunder from the Ashanti captain commanding the stockade. Even then, this minor victory cost them 18 casualties, the first in what would become a bloody and chaotic retreat southward. The noise of the skirmish had alerted nearby Ashanti patrols, who began to launch harassing strikes against their retreating enemies. At one point, as Ashanti reinforcements poured in from all directions, the British found themselves close to being surrounded and facing imminent massacre. However, a timely rainstorm inundated the Ashanti powder supplies, severely blunting the impending attacks. Thanks to this lucky break, the escape column maneuvered to safety, relatively unharmed. The porters in the British ranks suffered the most by far. Located at the rear of the column, they were the most likely to be caught by pursuing Ashanti soldiers. They were also severely malnourished. Remember, they had been receiving the scraps of the scraps within Fort Komasi. Many hadn't eaten a true meal since the siege had began months ago. Combine this weak state of health with the heavy burdens they carried, often cases of supplies or materials, and sometimes even superfluous weights which we'll touch on in more detail in a little bit. It was a miserable experience. Things weren't much better for the soldiers. In order to advance, British and House of Soldiers at times were forced to fling themselves at nearly impregnable defensive positions. For example, at a battle at the small village of Terrebouam, a group of House of Soldiers had to throw their bodies at a heavily fortified Ashanti stockade. They managed to overcome their near-certain deaths through the sheer ferocity of their fighting, forcing the shocked Ashanti defenders to abandon their posts before they could get their feet set to launch a counterattack. The Hausa suffered heavy casualties for this attack, and had they approached the issue with even a modicum less bravery, their losses likely would have been total. Luckily for the British, the pursuing Ashanti unit was led by an inexperienced young officer named Antoa Mensa. Antoa, lacking the strategic acumen to understand the severe importance of halting the British escape, 
seemed more focused on treating the column as a walking source of free stuff. Whenever British porters or soldiers dropped their boxes, or, as was common, dropped dead, Antoa ordered his men to rifle through the abandoned equipment and take what they could find. As a result, any time Antoa's men got close to the retreating column, they could simply drop a box of powder, ammunition, or food or something to keep them off their tails. In case you were wondering, he would later be heavily rebuked and even court-martialed by his superiors for these blunders. After several days of grueling flight, the British column reached their salvation, the British-controlled town of Nguanta. News of Hodgson's arrival provoked a fanfare in the press. Despite the retreat being heavy in British casualties, with about 80 men being dead, wounded, or missing by the end, it was honestly miraculous that anyone had escaped at all. It took a perfect storm of planning, luck, the intense bravery of his soldiers, and, well, a literal rainstorm. Had any of these elements fallen even slightly short of where they did, the governor would likely have been captured and the war ended right there. Though the escape succeeded, it was not all smiles and hugs for the British. Not only had a large portion of the escape force become casualties, but a great deal of military supplies had been lost. The heroic welcome that Hodgson received was also quite unbefitting of what had actually went down. Hodgson was given a great deal of praise for his Victorian morality. After all, he had elected to bring injured women along his escape route, despite their injuries rendering them as burdens, truly highlighting his chivalrous behavior. But, well, was it really? While the British press reacted mostly positively to Hodgson's escape, you could easily characterize his decision in a less flattering manner. Was Hodgson really making a daring attempt to rescue a portion of his garrison from their imminent demise? Or maybe, is he better characterized as a captain refusing to go down with his ship? After all, many people were still trapped in Fort Kumasi when Hodgson departed. He could have chosen to stay with them. On the other hand, you could argue that by choosing to leave the fort, Hodgson was reducing the number of mouths to feed at Fort Kumasi, improving the likelihood that the men he left behind could hold on until rescue arrived. It's a matter of perspective whether you view Hodgson's flight as a personal act of bravery, cowardice, or a bit of both. However, there is one element of Hodgson's plan which was just indisputably immoral, and that was his priorities of what material he brought with him. You see, alongside crates of ammunition and rations, things that were necessary for the escape, Hodgson also decided to order some of his carriers to bring objects of a more monetary, less utilitarian value. This included the entirety of the belongings that Hodgson had brought with him to Komasi, including furniture, books, expensive clothing, home decor, and other personal items, with 106 of the porters being designated to carry superfluous objects. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. The decision to burden his porters with frivolous and often heavy items dramatically slowed the pace of progress at some points. And remember, when the pursuing Ashanti caught up with the British column, it was usually these same overburdened porters who paid the price with their lives. 
Not to mention, if these 106 porters carrying household objects had been instructed to, you know, carry wounded men on gurneys, they could have allowed 53 more men to accompany the expedition. Or they could have acted as spare hands to assist with some of the bulkier loads burdened by other porters, speeding up their progress and undoubtedly saving the lives of many of the hundreds of porters who died on the journey. While the British took officially 80 casualties, deaths among porters who were not counted are generally estimated to be in the hundreds. In short, regardless of what you think about his decision to flee more generally, Hodgson's clearly selfish preference for the preservation of his own material belongings over the safety of his porters and servicemen he commanded does not reflect well on him. These complicating factors were not reflected in the British press, and the news of the governor's escape reinvigorated British morale. With morale rejuvenated, the officers restarted their efforts to break through the Ashanti defenses and relieve the remaining garrison at Fort Komasi. The British attacked Kokofo again, and the Ashanti stockades still repelled their offensive with ease, resulting in sizable British casualties. Recognizing that Kokofo was an insurmountable obstacle, Wilcox instead reworked his strategy. Rather than charging headfirst at the major barricade at Kokofo, Wilcox ordered his officers to launch a diversionary attack on the city. Meanwhile, as the Ashanti sent more men to reinforce the barricade, he maneuvered west, sneaking a small army through the unpaved heavy forests. The ploy worked, and the majority of Ashanti soldiers were sent to reinforce against the attack against Kokofo. As a result, when Wilcox and his men broke from the forest onto the road, he found only the small barricade at the town of Peki, much less impressive in both size and manpower behind it, guarding the path to Komasi. Understanding that artillery and machine gun barrages were useless against the well-engineered Shanti defenses, Wilcox instead ordered Captain Biss to attack headfirst at the structure in a bayonet charge. While this strategy would have been doomed against a large stockade like at Kokofu, Biss and his Nigerian soldiers were able to overcome the smaller wall at Peki on foot. Once they had overcome the wall, the Ashanti defenders were doomed. Their rifles did not include bayonets, so at close range, they were helpless to fight back against their adversaries. The defenders were massacred in the first major British victory on the battlefield. With the path to Komasi cleared, Wilcox's men advanced forward and relieved the remaining garrison at Komasi. The men inside were supplied with enormous crates of food and medicine. The relief of Fort Komasi was the decisive turning point of the War of the Golden Stool. The entire strategy concocted by Ashantewa and Boado had been fundamentally defensive in nature. The stockades had been constructed with the expectation that the British would be forced to make reckless attacks into them to relieve Fort Komasi. Well, now that the garrison was relieved, the Ashanti strategy was obsolete. The British could now just wait for further reinforcements to arrive on the coast. Meanwhile, due to the fact that the Ashanti army was more of a collection of disparate militias, it was impossible for any one leader to properly organize the level of coordination necessary for a successful counteroffensive. So, the Ashanti forces were stuck in their static positions, giving the British all the time in the world to prepare their next move. During this time, the British would also go out of their way to woo back the Bekwaheni, drawing him out of neutrality with offers of extended political power and revenge on specific political enemies after the conclusion of the war. The king mobilized his militia and joined the fight. With Komasi and much of eastern Ashantiman under British control, Wilcox adopted a new strategy to root out the strong but demoralized Ashanti forces in the West. The decision he came to was one of brutality that was unprecedented in Anglo-Ashanti warfare. 
In line with past British policy in the region, however, Wilcox passed the responsibility of the performance of these atrocities to African allies. Wilcox went from town to town in southern Ghana, recruiting largely untrained and inexperienced Fanti, Ga, Wasa, or others to ostensibly act as levies. The nickname that Wilcox and his officers gave to these levies is more indicative of their actual intended purpose. They called them locusts. Outfitted with red and white armbands, these locusts were usually unarmed and were intended to stay behind the British main army. Behind British lines, they would pillage and loot precious food supplies from Ashanti civilians, starting an artificial famine wherever they traveled. Wilcox also encouraged the worst of abuses done by the locusts, including murder, rape, and in some cases, enslavement. Yes, despite the fact that the British had officially outlawed the practice decades ago, Wilcox allowed the locusts to take Ashanti civilians as prisoners, despite the knowledge that this was merely a pretense for what was in reality the reinstatement of slavery. One of Wilcox's officers even wrote gleefully about the irony of Fanti and Ga enslaving the Ashanti, given that decades ago the relationship had largely been the opposite. Luckily for Wilcox, the unexpected nature of the Ashanti uprising meant that there were no British war correspondents present in the region. The flow of information was easily controlled, and word of his crimes he was overseeing went unreported to the public. The atrocities committed by Wilcox and the Locusts was only revealed decades later, when historians analyzed the private writings of British officers involved in the war. With the Locusts pressuring Ashanti food supply through overconsumption, and Ashanti morale through atrocities, Wilcox decided that now, late July, was the right time to confront the Ashanti. He would do so at the site of the greatest British defeat in the war, Kokoful. Understanding that the town stockade was impregnable against traditional British tactics, he instead opted for a more deceptive strategy. To catch the stockade's defenders off guard, Wilcox's men began to unpack their inventory, as if they were settling down to camp a few hundred feet in front of the stockade. The Ashanti scouts, who were tasked to keep track of British movements, decided that, since the British were obviously not going anywhere, that they would inform the men on the stockade that it was a good time for a meal break. However, as soon as the Ashanti defenders had climbed down from the wall, the British soldiers decided to rush forward, foregoing their usual artillery and machine gun barrage that normally gave the Ashanti plenty of warning before an attack. By the time that the men began ascending to the top of the stockade, it was too late. The British and their Nigerian troops had already climbed up. As we saw in previous battles, while the stockades gave the Ashanti an advantage in ranged fighting, their lack of bayonets meant that they were doomed up close. Once the British were over the walls, it was a massacre. The Kokofo militia was driven back and suffered crippling casualties in the retreat. Once the fighting died down and the British captured Kokofo, the town was of course swarmed by locusts and red and white armbands, who eagerly stole and consumed anything the residents had left behind and committed unconscionable acts of cruelty to straggling civilians. Just a few days later, the Ashanti suffered an even more crushing defeat. Seeing the necessity of a counterattack, the militias of Apokomensa and the king of Adansi joined forces, forming an army of roughly 3,000 men, which they planned to use to launch a desperate counterattack to relieve the struggling forces in the south and improve Ashanti morale. They confronted a British force of around 400 men outside of the town of Dompuasi. Opokumensa, not an experienced military man, showcased his military inadequacies in battle. He ordered his army to make a headstrong assault, to launch themselves as a British force and begin shooting volleys at close range. 
The outnumbered British, entrenched and armed with machine guns, mowed down the charging Ashanti with ease. Dompawasi was an utterly devastating defeat, almost a fifth of Apokumensa's force being killed or wounded. Interestingly, it also showcases the only successful utilization of machine guns during the war. Until Dompawasi, and for most of the time after, the machine guns that the British hauled around were largely just bulky, useless luggage. The Ashanti's defensive posture meant that, until now, the British rarely had the chance to use the weapon for their intended purpose. When the chances did arise, most Ashanti commanders were competent enough to recognize the device's power, and refrain from committal attacks. But not Apokumensa. Maybe he was inexperienced, or maybe he was just desperate. Regardless, it is ironic that the machine gun, the infamous symbol of military colonialism in Africa, played such a minor role in one of the most iconic colonial conflicts. By the end of July, the Ashanti capability to resist the British was rapidly crumbling. Stockade after stockade fell after the demoralized militias began withdrawing early from battles. By August, the only major pockets of resistance left were Ashantewa's headquarters of Ajwisu and a coalesced group of militias led by the Omanhene Kofi Kofia in the north of Ashantiman. To persuade more Ashanti to surrender, Wilcox ordered that any non-leadership prisoners be released back to their hometowns as a sign of goodwill. The plan worked, and as the stakes of defeat became lower, more and more Ashanti militias capitulated. To further cement the British advantage, more reinforcements soon arrived, including soldiers from Central Africa, as well as a brigade of Sikhs from the British colony of India. Their first focus was on destroying Kofia's army in the north. Despite mounting pressure in the forms of supply shortage and, you know, military attacks, Kofia's army continued to find surprising success. Abandoning the strategy of hiding behind barricades, Kofia regressed to the old Ashanti encirclement tactics. At first, this change produced some positive success. He scored multiple victories over British forces, including taking the lives of multiple important British officers and even severely wounding Melis. Much of his success can be attributed to his men. Kofia's men were largely veteran holdovers from the old Ashanti army. They were better trained, well supplied, and, crucially, they carried Akrafena in addition to their firearms, which helped immensely in warding off bayonet charges. Despite their early successes, though, even Kofia's army was eventually brought down by mounting losses. Unlike the British, he had no new reinforcements arriving. By the end of September, Kofia's army could barely afford another victory. In October, he fought the British to a stalemate, but realizing he had no realistic route to victory, he surrendered. Ya Ashantewa was the last Ashanti leader to surrender which cemented her image in popular memory as the de facto leader of the rebellion. The date of her surrender is widely contested, with dates ranging from October all the way until December being offered as the end of her resistance. Her hometown of Ajuisu was well fortified, and her status as the last bastion of organized Ashanti resistance meant that her militia attracted Ashanti soldiers who had refused to surrender alongside their militias. But even Ajuisu could not hold out forever. Eventually, even Ashantewa was forced to surrender. When Hausa soldiers entered Ijuisu and viewed her quarters, it was truly the home of a war leader. Guns, ammunition, and other wartime supplies were strewn throughout the room. Ruined parts of captured machine guns were kept in a big pile, alongside towers of books. As the war closed and the British reoccupied Ashantiman, most of the Omanhenes and generals who led the war were deported to Sierra Leone. A small minority of the most salient leaders, including Ya Ashantewa, were deported to the Seychelles. There, the woman who faced the cannon would live on for another 21 years, reconnecting with the other Ashanti exiles.
The war would go down in history as the final military defeat of the Ashanti Kingdom. In the year following the conclusion of the War of the Golden Stool, the new British administration of Ashantiman was formalized by the 1901 Order of Council. According to the rules laid out in the Order of Council, Ashantiman was now to be governed as the Ashanti Crown Colony, administered by the Undersecretary of the Gold Coast Governor. So, with all is said, the War of the Golden Stool seems like a fairly cut-and-dry Ashanti defeat. After all, the goal of the war had been to preserve Ashanti autonomy, and the war had clearly not succeeded in this regard. The Ashanti militias were beaten, and the revolt's leaders were exiled. But even though the War of the Golden Stool was a defeat for the Ashanti, it was far from a fight in vain. For starters, there was the fate of the eponymous Golden Stool. Despite their military victory in the conflict, the British never managed to get their hands on the stool, with the object remaining hidden. While future British colonial administrators never officially gave up their search for the stool, there would never again be another major, coordinated search effort like Hodgson's for fear of provoking another war with the Ashanti. The de facto termination of the search for the Golden Stool reflected a wider change in British colonial policy that came about from the war. Despite resulting in a British victory at the end, the war had been immensely costly for the British. Low estimates for the casualties of British and British Alliance soldiers hovered just over a thousand, not counting the likely thousand more dead or injured African carriers in British service, as well as the considerable non-combat casualties for disease. In an Assembly of Parliament in 1901, British MPs debated if and how British colonial policy needed to change to prevent similar catastrophes in the future. While some MPs argued that the source of the rebellion was insufficient British harshness in the aftermath of the Fourth Anglo-Ashanti War, the decision settled on by the majority, including by future Prime Minister David Lloyd George, was that Hodgson's stalwart and provocative search for the Golden Stool, despite the objections of Ashanti elites, was to blame for the conflict. As a result, the British would reconsider the direction of their numerous colonial administrations around the world, but especially in West Africa. Influenced by their experience in the War of the Golden Stool, future British colonial administrators would be far more cautious when interacting with traditional monarchies. Compared to other European colonial powers, British policy became far more lenient when it came to allowing local monarchies to maintain their prestige and a degree of autonomy on issues of culture and traditions. The effect of this policy can still be seen today. As post-colonial, traditional monarchies remain far more prevalent in former British colonial possessions than, say, former French, Belgian, or Portuguese possessions. But the most obvious example of this treatment remained Ashantiman itself. Now wary of the risk of provoking another revolt, British colonial authorities treaded with especially light steps in Ashantiman compared to the rest of their colonies in the Gold Coast. Relative to the rest of the colony, labor and military conscription were rare in Ashantiman. In 1903, the first railroad connection opened between Komasi and the south, through the city of Sekondi. Komasi was revived as an administrative center. The city that once housed the government of the Ashanti Empire now acted as the capital of the Ashanti Crown Colony. The agricultural initiative started by Prempa began once again to bear fruit, especially the cocoa and rubber industries. These industries produced great profit for British administrators and a small selection of Ashanti elites. But for the majority of the population, economic life stagnated. Soon, the Ashantiman Shamu was allowed to meet again, renamed by the British the Kamasi Council of Chiefs. They were afforded a shocking degree of self-rule, especially compared to the rest of the colony. 
They essentially governed Shantiman in most facets of daily life, especially in areas of culture, transportation, and religion. Albeit, their true power was incredibly limited, as the colonial office had the power to veto any of the decisions that the council reached that they disapproved of. While the Ashanti state was theoretically gone, the national solidarity of the Ashanti nation persisted as long as the Golden Stool remained hidden. After ten years of peace in 1910, the council requested to speak with the British colonial administrator about the potential return of Prempa from exile. While the British administrator declined, fearing that the return of Prempa could serve as a spark to ignite a resurgence in Ashanti nationalism, he did so carefully in a manner that implied that the question would still be up for future consideration. Compare that to Hodgson's declaration in 1900 that the Ashantahene would never return. The status quo continued without contest for another 11 years, until a minor crisis in 1921 threatened once again to bring war between the Ashanti and British. The Gold Coast colonial government, as part of a wider infrastructure expansion, constructed a series of roads throughout the Ashanti colony. One of the roads happened to pass over the hiding spot of the Golden Stool, meaning that the relic would certainly be discovered if the road's construction was allowed to go on. The Council of Chiefs, some of whom knew about the Sewell's whereabouts, sprang into action. They demanded that the British cancel the construction of the road and began mobilizing militias to fight the British should they refuse. The suddenness and harshness of this demand made it abundantly clear to the colonial administration that the road was the location of the Golden Stool. But after careful consideration, the colonial government decided that another war for the Golden Stool would be too costly for its rewards. They conceded the issue and cancelled the road project. The 1921 construction scandal showcased just how much British policy in Ashantiman had changed since 1900. At the turn of the century, the British had launched multiple prolonged search efforts to uncover the Golden Stool despite knowing of the imminent danger of war. Now, with the British colonial authority essentially stumbling onto the object by accident, the mere threat of war was enough to cow the British into reversing their plans. The scandal also forced the British to reckon with the reality that, try as they may, Ashanti national solidarity wasn't going anywhere. But most importantly, the scandal rocketed the issue of Anglo-Ashanti relations back to public consciousness in both Ashantiman and Britain, which simultaneously revived questions of Prempa's repatriation. Figures ranging from Omanhenes to non-governmental organizations like the Gold Coast Aborigines Rights Protection Society and even international Christian organizations like the Wesleyan Mission, began to lobby for an end to the Ashantahene's protracted exile. In 1924, the issue even gained such prominence that it became the subject of a debate in a question-time session in British Parliament. That year, the Gold Coast Colonial Administration came to a decision. Since, as one Gold Coast newspaper put it, it would be better to release Prempa too early rather than too late, the administration announced that Prempa's exile was over. In exchange for revoking his title of King of All Ashantis, and instead adopting the much less electric title of Kumasehene, Prempa was allowed to return to Ashantiman. His arrival on the Gold Coast was a spectacle, with people of all races and ethnic groups crowding around his ship in an effort to catch a glance at the returning king. As the British would soon find out, it would have likely been better for everyone to just let Prempa return sooner. The man had never really been the rebel king that the British imagined, and had, even when ruling over an independent kingdom, been pretty amicable to British interests. Even though we held the title of King of Komasi, in reality, Prempa possessed no special rights afforded to royalty. Legally, he was a private citizen, just like anyone else. It turned out that bringing back the mild-mannered Prempa was not the spark that would ignite the Ashanti powder keg. 
He urged cooperation with the colonial authority, hoping to continue the further development of the same pet industries that he had promoted, only this time under colonial rule. In retrospect, there probably never would have even been an Ashanti powder keg had the British just let Primper return sooner. It turned out that, when the colonial government was willing to negotiate in good faith and respond to fair and just demands, the Ashanti population was actually a lot less likely to rise up in revolt. Crazy, right? As the British came to understand the utility of having Prempa around as an ally, he was gradually afforded a friendlier relationship with the colonial authorities. In 1925, the British colonial authority commissioned a new palace for the King of Komasi, a spacious home that combined elements of English colonial architecture with some influence from Akan architectural traditions. He would live there for the remaining six years of his life, before passing away in 1931. The title of Komasahene was passed on to his nephew, Prempa II. The new Prempa would oversee a revival of Ashanti traditional government and court life. Using the fame and devotion that came along with his position, he recruited men to fill traditional Ansafohene positions, while extracting largely symbolic oaths of loyalty from old Omanhenes. Apart from cultural concerns like festivals and titles, the Ashanti traditional monarchy acted as something of a political organization, lobbying the colonial government to fit their interests, drumming up support or opposition for certain policies, and more. By this point, apparently the British government realized that they were better off cooperating with the Ashanti monarchy, and were over the fear that Ashantiman was a powder keg ready to explode at the first hint of unity. In 1935, Prempa II was permitted to give himself the title of Ashantihene, marking the first revival of the title in 39 years. Even after the modern nation of Ghana gained independence from the British colonial empire, the Ashanti traditional monarchy continues to exist in the country, functioning in a similar state-within-a-state approach to how Prempa II had designed it. Even to this day, as I write and record this episode, Otomfo Ose Tutu II rules in Komasi as the Ashantihene. Even though the Ashanti empire is no more, Ashantiman continues to exist as one of the constituent regions of the Republic of Ghana. And the legacy of this region's imperial history still looms large. One particularly powerful legacy that the Ashanti Empire left behind was a commitment to constitutional and bureaucratic government. Since achieving independence, Ghana has enjoyed the status of being the success story of West Africa, at least in terms of governmental stability. Needless to say, the country's government has been far from perfect. I mean, nowhere on earth can even come close to boasting that claim. Corruption, partisan patronage networks, and oligarchical influence by private firms, both foreign and domestic, have been endemic issues in Ghana's governance since independence. Regardless, the country has undeniably experienced a relatively strong degree of stability and interethnic peace compared to its West African neighbors. I can't help but recall the special criminal punishment reserved in the Ashanti Empire for interfamilial crimes, designed to ameliorate familial blood feuds through a shared confidence in the state justice system. I wouldn't be surprised if this spirit of shared justice, or understanding the potential danger of group-wide conflict, has contributed to Ghana's relative peace. Or maybe that's a reach. But even today, the current Ashantihene has done his part in ensuring that his country stays on the road to peace. In 2002, a dispute over the traditional monarchy in Dagbon escalated into a massacre that took 41 lives and threatened to spiral northern Ghana into a deadly state of guerrilla warfare. Fortunately, a committee was able to negotiate a quick peace settlement to prevent the conflict from spiraling out of control. And who else played a leading role on that committee but Ashantihene Osetutu II? 
At least in this case, the legacy of the Ashanti Empire, and the prestige that association with the Empire continues to hold, literally prevented a brewing war within my lifetime. Throughout the trials and tribulations of the entirety of Ashanti history, between wars and revolutions, innovations and infighting, times of great life and times of great death, slavery and freedom, and even the extinguishing of the state at the hands of the largest empire the world has ever seen, one thing remained untouched. The Golden Stool. God's gift to the Ashantahene remains in his care. At Mantia Palace, Komasi, Republic of Ghana, the great tree still stands, and his people are shaded from the sun. Thank you for listening. I started this season in August of 2021. Now, at the time of uploading this episode, it's September of 2022. This season represented an entire year and change of work. And thank you for sticking with me for all 30 episodes, all 260 pages of script, 92 scholarly sources examined in research, and countless hours of listening, recording, and editing. I'd really like to thank my great friends Devon, Tida, and Katya for providing your amazing voice work. You really helped the show come alive. Special thanks also goes out to Tida and Justin, whose work in editing the show was absolutely instrumental in ensuring that it didn't overwhelm me and that we could keep producing episodes. Thank you to our supporters on Patreon for allowing me to somewhat financially justify the thousands of hours I spent researching and writing the season. I've said this before, but the show really couldn't happen without your support. Your support is like the fuel that lets the engine keep running. And thanks to everyone who listens. It means a lot to know that there are people out here who share my love and passion for African history. Not gonna lie, talking about and studying a field like this that's somewhat niche can get kind of lonely at times, so it's nice to know that there are people out there who uh, have the same passion that I do. Also thank you to the people who wrote the 92 articles of scholarly work cited on the Seasons tab at historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. You are the people who actually put in the legwork in doing the primary research for the show. All I did is convey your fantastic work, so big thanks for that. And finally, and most of all, thank you to the Insamanfo, the ancestors of the Ashanti. In this season, we spoke endlessly of your lives, achievements, struggles, and setbacks. Thank you for living lives that were such an amazing experience to learn and teach about. So, what's next? Well, I'm afraid that there won't be an episode coming out in two weeks. Myself, Justin, and maybe some others will be busy editing the absolute monster of a show that is the super-duper extra-long special episode about the Fulani Jihads, the Islamic revolutions that rocked the history of Sahelian West Africa in the 19th and 18th centuries. And then, it's on to season four, where we'll enter a new world that I've been waiting with great anticipation to finally cover. For the first time, we're leaving the mainland, and entering the history of Africa's largest island. Join us as we enter into the world of Madagascar, and the great empire of Marina that ruled it. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Penza, Tobias Tunglin, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Ose Kwame, Godfrey Sabalabie, Dizar H., Evan Edwards, 
Pascal Nwokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabodike, Shayun Olorontimain, and Kwajo Amankwa, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.